Welcome to another episode of Are You Fucking Shitting Me? <laughs> I'm April Lunston. And I'm Rachel Peacock. I keep laughing every time we say the name of the show. Because it's delightful. <laughs> I'm really excited for this week's episode. It is about a cargo cult. What's a cargo cult, you may ask? A bunch of dudes that wear cargo pants? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just like that. Cargo pants. With all their cargo pockets filled with more cargo pants. Oh, is that what you're supposed to put in there? <laughs> what else would you put in those I pockets? I have no idea. I don't know, but I like that. Wow, yeah. just the endless cargo pant pants. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's not actually what this is about. This episode is about a cargo cult. It's called the John Frum Movement. We're going to hear all about John Frum. It's... Well, I keep saying fascinating, and it is, but it's really amazing, kind of bonkers that there's a group of people out there that are waiting for salvation through cargo. Yeah. So what does that mean? So so what is, so it's not a bunch of dudes in cargo pants. So what We've is determined a cargo that. Yeah. So what is it actually? So this group of people live in the South Pacific, and I don't know if you guys remember that really great TV show called Survivor. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, so I Survivor many... Vanuatu. Oh, yeah. Whoa. Right? Yes, is your mind blown a little bit? Here? My mind is totally blown. Because you've just... seen the documentary. I have. I didn't, put, I didn't put that together at all. So it's in the South Pacific. Vanuatu is an island nation. And there is a specific island called Tana. And on Tana is a community of people who believe in a almost Jesus-like figure called John Frum who is going to save them through cargo. Um, Let's bring on our guest expert, who is Jessica Sherry. She is a documentarian, and she created a really great documentary all about the community as it stands today. The documentary is called Waiting for John, and I gave her a call and asked her about what she learned. I'm Jessica Sherry. I'm a documentary filmmaker and the director of the feature film Waiting for John. The John Frum movement, uh, basically, um, they're these tiny islands in the South Pacific Ocean. Um, and we don't talk, talk about them a lot. There's one string of islands called Vanuatu. There's about 83 islands there. And so during World War II, the U.S. built a bunch of bases in the South Pacific to fight Japan. And 
the people on these islands sort of were living very traditional lives, you know, subsistence agriculture, and hadn't had a lot of exposure to technology. So when the U.S. military came over with all these sort of airplanes and trucks and anything from, you know, um, pens to canned food and refrigerators, all these things just seemed otherworldly. They seemed, you know, beyond the indigenous people's sort of wildest imagination um, that, that people had, had this kind of technology. So they never saw the Americans making any of these things, and they just kind of arrived by cargo plane. So they thought that the Americans had some connection to the spirit world. And they saw the military kind of marching around, you know, in in unison and raising the American flag. And by some logic, they thought, well... Maybe if we march around and uh, like the military does and, and raise the American flag, then we can also get these goods to come to us. So they started that during the World War, World War II, sort of in the 40s and 50s, and they still do it today in a little village on an island called Tana and kind of wait um, to see whether uh, the Americans will come back and the, and the cargo will come to them. And so around the world, it's it's kind of become known as a cargo cult. And I consider it sort of the last surviving cargo cult. And it's called the John Frum movement because their prophet was John Frum. And he's the spirit or the person who, who originally predicted that America would come and, you know, that good things would rain down upon the people. It is really interesting that it's so recent, you know, and I think that there's an interesting divide there between what do we call religions and what do we call cults, you know, and does just the fact that it sort of rose up in the 40s and doesn't and doesn't have this sort of this long history, does it seem more unbelievable or improbable, the whole belief system, you know? And you would think since it did rise up in the 40s that John Fromm should be, you know, identifiable, that we should have some evidence. And I think, you know, interestingly on that point is that you know, these islands, a lot of their history is told through um, orally, through or- oral history and oral culture, you know, and, and just stories that are passed down through the generations. So there's not a lot of written history. Even in the 40s, they were, you know, they, there were not a lot of written history except by the people who had colonized the island. There is no evidence of John from existing. There's no one who, ha- there's no photographs, there's no um, parents or brothers who say, you know, yes, he, yes, he was in our family. And there's a lot of different stories around, as you mentioned, uh, uh, where he came from. Um, the story that a lot of people tell, which is John from America, um, maybe uh, if he was a scout from the American military who landed on the island and said, the uh, America's coming, you know, in, in 1939, maybe 1940, he came and said, was scouting and said, oh, yeah, we're going to build a base here. Don't worry. Good things will come. And so that sort of rumor circulated and they just called him John from because it was John from America. You know, that's, that's um, a widely, a widely told story. Um, and then there's sort of another version of, of the history that I think I'm you know, I sort of lean towards, which is that it arose at a very particular point in this island's history when people were really repressed by colonial powers and they were looking for something to believe in. So could John Frum have been, you know, made up by the leaders? Right now they refer to him as a spirit. Could he have been a vision to get behind, to, you know, you know, get everyone mobilized in believing in something and forming an identity? And, you know, I kind of tend to go to more towards that story, that some of the leaders the islanders who originally um, formed the John Frum movement, that they also made up the spirit. And originally, some people say he was called John Broom, um, as in he was going to broom all the bad things off the island. So that's another oh. another take on it. 
Oh, I hadn't heard that. I noticed that the iconography is the American flag. We don't know what John looks like. Did they ever create a look for him? Or, like, how will they know when he returns? Yes, yeah, so, you know, for the documentary, I interviewed a lot of people about waiting for John. And the closest person I could get to his father saw John Fromm in a vision in the woods. And what I think I discovered about oral history is that people tend to repeat the same details, you know, that he wore a long trench coat, that he um, had that he had shiny buttons, you know, that he spoke many languages and he was neither white nor black. They say he was kind of in the middle, something else, un- un- unidentifiable. So you get, you know, no matter who you interview, you get these sort of specific details that have been passed down, but there's no image of him. And, you know, the movement has been represented by the American flag, like you said, and in the very beginning, it was represented by a red cross, but never a a picture of him or anything like that. And I think what happened with this religion in particular is that a lot of the leaders became sort of... um, not necessarily deified, but they were making the movement. So um, Mm -hmm. the chief now is sort of this this guy, Chief Isaac, and it was his grandfather that kind of shepherded the movement and encouraged everyone to get behind it and was arrested and, um, and put in jail for 17 years for kind of stirring unrest among the native population. And so I think instead of looking to an image of John Fromm, a lot of people look to the images of the leaders of the movement at that time for that like personal connection and, and to look at the, the supporters and kind of this, the, the people who actually saw the spirit. The spirit um, has communicated, you know, throughout generations. So from his father and his grandfather to his father, uh, to Chief Isaac, and then he passed it on to one of his sons, Kelaka, who now goes to secret spaces and speaks with the spirit. What I find very interesting in this is there's a, a huge reliance on kava as part of the ceremony. And is that not a hallucinogen or have hallucinogenic properties? Could that not also convince you within yourself that you are speaking with the spirit and open to the universe? Yeah, um, kava is an interesting, um, you know, it's an interesting drug. It's an interesting plant, um, really popular throughout South Pacific culture. And um, I would, I would recommend trying it out. Um, it's, it's not illegal here. Um, and Tana is said to have some of the strongest kava anywhere. The um, where it plays in their culture is kind of at 4:30 before sunset. The men in the vi- in a village get together um, at the kava drinking grounds where women aren't allowed and they have some kava and sort of talk about their ideas and and the day's events and it's sort of like going down to the pub and having a beer you know with friends except they're they're still dealing with a, a you know a gender stratified society i guess but it's a common pastime and uh it's not a super strong hallucinogen it does have hallucinogenic properties uh so i guess you know, it could have played a part. One thing that's interesting about kava is that it comes from a root, and the young boys in the village kind of chew it up um, for their elders, and then um, then they kind of pour water water through it so, and and drink drink this sort of um, terrible tasting kind of dishwater tasting um, uh, <laughs> uh, water that uh, that you know um, makes your whole mouth numb. Um, but it's it's. It's hallucinogenic properties are not super strong. It does it have have a mild euphoria to it, which is why people enjoy it. What I would say is that uh, vision in South Pacific culture, in culture 
Ontana um, are are very common. Like they're they're sort of how you communicate with the spirits. So uh, I wouldn't blame John Fromm on Kava, um, but, but I did, he was originally seen at the Kava drinking ground. So you know I can't I can't say either way. Well, I wasn't going to use the word blame. I just find it interesting. <laughs> but I, I want to backtrack just a little bit because you did talk about the environment within which the movement was created. Um, and I know Chief Isaac kept saying it's a return to customs and it's a key component to the movement, which I think is so fascinating in and of itself because, as you said, there was a lot of colonization. There seems to be a disconnect between the emphasis in the return to customs and old ways and the desire of a promise of technology, essentially. Do they see any cognitive dissonance between these two beliefs, or is there um, any way that the John Frum followers reconcile this? Yeah, you know, I mean, it's definitely a contradiction, right? I mean, it's it's sort of follow your traditional, the traditional path, um, and all of these uh, these amazing sort of you know technological innovations and and um, goods will come to you. Uh, and I think to understand it, um, you have to look at, at the history of it a little bit, um, and to and to see sort of um, in the 1860s, you know, uh, missionaries came and said that all of the customs, kava drinking included, were was forbidden for um, for the people of Tana. And in, in 1906, England and um, and France colonized the the island, and uh, they made it totally illegal. So the missionaries' kind of teachings were now put into law, and they actually arrested people for practicing traditions that were so old. You know, how do you protect these customs um, that you know that you have seen value in and that you really believe in? Especially when sort of in you know in 1940, the Americans come with all of these even you know new technologies that you couldn't have ever imagine of course people seeing that they wanted to get it i think you know one way to protect customers say well if you continue with your um your custom beliefs and your traditions and don't go this you know to this white man path then you will get all of these things in the future so don't worry about it um that they will come to you you don't have to you know go and um, pursue money or pursue um pursue technology it'll just come to you by staying in your own identity so i think they kind of played both sides in that way and you know i would also say that from an outsider's perspective it's crazy that they're sitting around waiting for cargo you know waiting for canned food but from their perspective it's much more than that it kind of at a time in their history when they were so repressed it gave them a hope and a plan that let's stay together let's form this new community this new identity and we'll get strength from that to continue on and it, it did work but you know i won't deny that it is definitely uh a little contradictory there <laughs> but I, I will say just from a personal perspective it's just it is beautiful that there was a a return of like this is our identity and outlawed or not we should value that frankly and this could just be 120 years later the customs that were outlawed seemed so mild i mean the the pigs and <laughs> like having a feast mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that is such a it's a it kind of just brought up the well colonialism so much of it i believe was about actually suppressing the identity of the people you're colonizing. Um, 
Mm-hmm. I, I mean, to me too, um, you know, and I hope that this comes across in, in the film. I think that those, those customs that they're practicing, it, you know, they're so valuable and so um, full of history and, um, and life. And, and I think when, when you speak about colonialism, it's true. Uh, how can you rob people of their identity? How do you really get them under your thumb? Uh, and I think that by looking at, you know, their marriage ceremony or, um, or their local, you know, their local drinking establishment and just making those, those things impossible to practice. You can call it whatever you want to and kind of civilizing the population, but really, really it's just kind of robbing them of their power and their, their joys of life. A lot of the time that I spent on town, you know, creating this film, I, it also led me to think, why do people believe, you know, um, what is religion for? Uh, and through the process, I think I came up with, you know, two, two things that really struck me. And one um, was definitely that well when when things happen in, in the world that you can't explain um that that you have no that that you have no you know earthly explanation for um and that could be you know what happens after death or um you know how how did evolution happen or how is this whole world created those things that that you just can't explain with with the knowledge you have uh you look to faith and you look to religion to help you do that and i think that's exactly what happened with the john frum movement is that you know seeing what the americans had and seeing these planes and trucks and things that they hadn't imagined before um and couldn't explain um with mm-hmm. with the the terms that they had it, it sort of became oh well let's look to religion and faith to explain that you know and kind of in that way uh explain the world and that was the first thing that I, that really um that really resonated with me about religion and I think the second is what we were just talking about that it gave the people uh, a strength and an identity and a community you know uh that is still still very strong and sort of um even now when people know where cargo comes from you know they know that there are factories in the US that make cans of tuna and, and it comes to you by plane and um and have a better understanding of the world you know they have cell phones um they're not totally cut off uh but what makes you continue raising the american flag and continue believing this connection with america and, and believing you know having faith that more good things are going to come to you and i think it's really because of their history um and their community uh that you know that it gives them something that they all believe in together and these rituals that they have performed for years and years now and and it gives them a strength that you don't find elsewhere so i think that's probably universal about religion too and you think of like what is spiritual you know and they have one custom um in the John Frum movement where every Friday night the whole village gets together and they play music and sing songs, a lot of them having to do with their history and their culture from sunset until sunrise. And, you know, some people go to sleep, but there are usually some young people who stay up just playing this music and um, dancing and celebrating, but also at that 4 a.m. time where, where everyone's a little tired and you're just kind of playing. There is something in that moment when people have just stayed up at night and, and they do this this ritual singing that you're like, I feel... I don't know if it's spiritual, but I feel something here, you know? I don't know. So that was definitely a a moment for me that I would say I was a little amazed. Jesus, that sounds great. All night, dancing with Kava Kava. Sounds like a rave. (laughs) A little bit. A real analog rave. A rave without the music, which actually would be great. Perfect. <laughs> Much 
much better. I mean, they have drums and they have singing. It's just not electronica. That fucking electronica that... I mean, one would presume fewer seizures in these nighttime celebrations. It's funny because it was kind of a ceremony that turned me on to John from in the first place. Oh, do tell. Well, we had some friends in town after a nice long weekend at Joshua Tree. And um, we decided to eat some weed brownies. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Yeah. And they were particularly strong. Um, I am a lightweight. I don't do a lot of weed in my life. Anyways, the group of us, we decided to have some of these brownies and watch a Werner Herzog documentary. It's kind of delightful just to hear his voice. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So we're having this nice little body high sitting around. The documentary is called Into the Inferno. It's really beautiful to watch. I don't know it what at this point the plot line if there was any or how the story went (laughs) for the documentary um but i do recall doubt it yeah (laughs) i mean it's herzog too we know that nature is trying to destroy man and it's the eternal struggle against man and nature anyways we come to this section in the movie where i my ears just perked up and it was a group of people who celebrated a god that lived in their volcano nearby and these were the john from people it was chief isaac that's amazing so did you know anything at the time about john from being from america or anything like that i had never even heard of john from (laughs) it just blew my mind i kept thinking well these people have to know about refrigeration now why are they waiting for a god to come out of the volcano and jessica does explain that She also doesn't really go into the volcano connection in this documentary, which I asked her about. The volcano, Yasser Volcano, is an active volcano. And if you're in the Johnson Village, you can see it. Um, and, it, you know, it's spouting smoke and it, it rumbles all throughout the night. So it is certainly a presence. Um, for me, I think a lot of traditional um, belief system is, is connected with nature. So John Fromm isn't the only god that lives in Yeser Volcano. And there are also gods that are in the mountains and the and the oceans and kind of everywhere. As with a lot of sort of indigenous culture, belief systems, it originates sort of in nature, um, the spirits. So um, I, I felt like uh, John Fromm's connection to the volcano was less, um, relevant and present than some, than his connection with America and sort of the the mysteries of his history, you know, and and sort of different connections that I could make with other religions. But there is um, there is a connection. It is said that John from lives in the volcano. I've I've heard he also lives in a lot of other places too. But he does. <laughs> uh, there was uh, um, a very strong connection with the volcano, um, and that when he returns. Because um, there is in the mythology that John Frum will return. America will bring back goods and send, you know, send good things. But John Frum will also return one day, kind of like Jesus will return or something like that. 
it's said that when he returns, he will come out of the volcano with his army. I, I don't know exactly what the army is made of, but um, I imagine it looks like the U.S. Army. Um, <laughs> but that he will come out of the volcano. Um, so, yeah, so there is a connection there. And I think you can, depending on who you talk to, sort of sort of value it as much as you as much as you want, you know, and and uh, make it a central theme or not. I will say that that volcano is a spiritual experience. So, um, so it wouldn't surprise me if you know John from down there. Okay, so that's interesting. The reason she doesn't focus on the volcano in nature is that that's pretty standard for any community that lives close to nature. And if you have a volcano next to you, it's going to be significant. But that's already been explored. So she wanted to look into what was going on around them at the time. That makes sense. Yeah. You know, a very specific thing about this, April, is in their community, there became a divide. And it all started because of a man called Fred. To go back in history a little bit, in 1956, they raised the flag, um, you know, of, of America. And they, um, Chief Isaac's grandfather got out of prison and they started to really... Um, you know, celebrate John Frum. And so the movement grew. And through the 60s and 70s, you know, um, you can see like David Attenborough um, who's in, in the documentary, in, our, in my documentary, in archival footage, um, visited the island. Like anthropologists were fascinated with it. And it all sort of fed this sort of frenzied belief, um, you know, uh, colonialism in 1980, uh, you know, Vanuatu became free. And so um, all, all the while, John Frum, the John Frum movement, you know, became more and more powerful. Um, so in, in 2000, you know, I'd say that about 5,000 people on the island believed in John Frum, which, was a, which is a lot... Um, you know, considering the size of everything. Um, and uh, and that's when sort of Prophet Fred enters the picture. And basically at this moment, um, he predicted there was, there was a lake um, called Lake Siwi that was above the village. Um, and he predicted that the lake would overflow and flood the village. Um, and it did. It overflowed, and the, and it was a lake that had been that had not overflowed or had not flooded, um, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it wasn't a common occurrence, and he got it spot on. Um, mm-hmm. And and so people thought maybe he has prophetic power. And so Fred went on to sort of take control of the, of the John Frum movement and. Um, and create sort of a new a new religion out of it that was based on him being a prophet. Um, and it definitely, you know, you look at all the religions and you see sort of these like major, you know, all the major religions have major splits, you know. Um, and and in in that context, this was the John Frum movement's major split where um, you know everyone started to question everything and um, and fo- and follow Fred rather than Chief Isaac, whose you know grandfather uh, you know spoke with the spirit and all of this. So um, so Prophet Fred cast Chief Isaac out of the village, and so the pure you know believers who still wanted to believe in the John Frum movement rather than this new thing that Fred created, which was called Unity, um, they followed Chief Isaac. Um, so only about 250 people followed him they created a new village and that's the village that still exists today where where prophet fred kind of um took took a lot of the followers you know um and 
whatever happened, um, you know, it really, it, it was kind of a, a, a painful moment where, where everything started to dissolve. Basically, they were cast out and they, and they named the village what in, in their language means cast out, Lamakara. Um, and then, and then to kind of take back their identity, um, Isaac's son went to speak to John Frum to get a new name. So, um, so they called it Orrery and in a big, in the big John Frum celebration that happens, uh, once a year on February 15th. That's, um, John Frum Day. Uh, and, and, you know, it, it all comes back to identity, right? And, and saying we are not going to be the cast out anymore. We are, we are taking this back. We're going to rename this village, um, and, and be proud. One thing that I would mention is I think what really kind of drove me to make this this film is that we look at World War II from our own perspective, and we look at so many things of the in the world from our perspective, you know, in history. And it was really interesting to me to think about what the American military coming would have meant to them, you know, how they saw it without the context that we had or, you know, just from their own culture's perspective and how a moment that we maybe don't think of ever in history, the building of this base on this random island in the South Pacific really changed the course of a lot of people's lives, you know, in that area. And it's not the kind of thing that gets reported in the news. And even in history books, it's not a thing that you normally look at. And I guess I was really inspired to sort of talk to the people and kind of see their perspective on on these moments of history. But also kind of in the the larger realm got me thinking of, you know, things today and the way we think of our intervention in a lot of different places from our own perspective specifically and never think or rarely think of what the coming of America's military or of – you know, of, of outside forces, colonial forces moving into places, what it means to the people there and how they might see it and interpret it. And I think that, to me, that's just a, a powerful thought. Well, there you go, April. <laughs> that is the story of one person's experience with the John from Colt which she, again, brings up the the point, what is cult and what is religion? As a non-religious person who's kind of dabbled in a bunch of religions, um, I don't, I kind of think cults and religion are sort of the same thing. You know, it's weird. I think, um, and I don't have my, my dictionary in front of me, but I think there are a few different levels of belief. So sure. you have cult, which typically has a cult personality leading people. True, true. So you've got your purple shrouders, your Jones Townsers, your cults. Then you have religion, which in my opinion, again, believe whichever thing you want to believe, but which is so easily co-opted by an institutionalized mentality and people that want to use it for power, as we've seen, this idea of what we bring is more important than your value system. And then there's spirituality, which is a communication with the universe. And and that I can get behind. Yeah, I'm kind of down with that, too. I like I personally like the non-deity situation. Mm-hmm, for <laughs> sure. And it seemed like they needed a John from to get them out of being colonized by these missionaries who sort of wiped away their traditions. Yeah, it's really an unusual outcome from something that can normally be very suppressive, which is uh, a group of people coming into your 
into your island and into your nation and changing things for you. But I think what maybe, and I, I don't know, but maybe what was different here is they had already been suppressed by the missionaries. Right. And then John Fromm is a vision. We don't know if he existed. We don't know if this was a creation from the Kava. We don't know what happened. I totally want to think that it's John from America. I, I mean, that totally want to believe that it's John like from America. It's this dude that showed up and he was like, hey, uh, yeah, here's a pen. And, yeah. And <laughs> uh, look, we can write things. But he and, didn't even uh, have the cargo I some at that time. friends who are going to come. Well, yeah. but I mean, if he's wearing the pants and he's, he's got, got cargo pants, they know. Out of the yeah. pants, then. But I've got America's going to come be your friend and, and they're going to yeah. save you. I think that this was the situation is those Americans, the military Americans, didn't come in at this point. They didn't come in to co-opt the island for their own. Like we weren't trying to con- capture that island to be part of the U.S. forever. It was yeah. a military station. So the people that would have gone there weren't there to get involved in the politics. They were using it as an outpost in World War II to mm-hmm. fight the Japanese. Yeah. So the byproduct of it may be that since these people weren't imposing, these Americans weren't imposing their laws. Right. And they weren't trying to take over their island or convince them of one religion or another. So they were kind of... And here they brought gifts Mm -hmm. that these people had never seen before, like Jessica points out. I also think, and this is another thing that's interesting for me personally, and, and Jessica and I talked about it, is there's no iconography for John it's really just the yeah, American flag. I, I found that so weird because I assumed that there would be some image. I mean, I picture him as a soldier who's mm-hmm. blondish. I don't know. Well, I yeah, mean. but then they say he's not white. He's not black. He's somewhere in between. He's a spirit world guy. I think what's cool about it is that because there's no iconography from John, they're not worshiping John. They're actually yeah. worshiping the idea of salvation. Well, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of yeah. cool. Their salvation comes in a form that we're like, dude, you just go to Sears. You can get a refrigerator. <laughs> and also, come on. Don't, you don't need all that stuff. You don't need I, all There's that a part to me that was like, oh, God, give them a season of hoarders and then they won't want anything. <laughs> <laughs> and I also I felt that their life was pretty beautiful. I thought that, too. And I got mad at that man named Fred. Oh, what a dick. I was like, what's up with you, dude? <laughs> you just this power the grab that you just had. Totally. And also naming, I don't know, I felt so bad the name, <sighs> of, the name of the town meant outcast. So April, I've got to, I got to tell you, I kind of, I sold you out in your emotional ways. Uh-oh. I let Jessica know that you cried when they took back their town and renamed it. Oh, yeah. I mean, they were called outcast. They were... I know, but it's so beautiful. They had another ceremony. Yeah. And they took back again their identity. And renamed their village. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that. I loved that so much. I mean, that just filled me with hope for them. And uh, it was was very hopeful. Yeah, I thought it was beautiful. I mean, I'm rooting for them. (laughs) I just am. And I think John Frum's going to come back. I, it, whether or not he does, I just <laughs> does not. I want, I want this community to to stick to their guns. I I love the. They're like, you know what? No, our customs are valuable, and Kava seems pretty chill. Like good for, good on them. 
Let's go do some kava right now. Apparently, it's not illegal in the U.S. I heard her say that. My ears perked <laughs> up. <laughs> uh, and there are a lot of readings, other places you can go for John Frum. Like, they have been studying this cult for a long time. It's just not well known to most people, I guess. Uh, yeah, I never heard of it till you told me about it. So yeah, I hadn't heard of it until Werner Herzog told me about it. <laughs> That's how we find out about everything. <laughs> Werner! <laughs> I uh, did check out the David Attenborough documentary as oh. usual. It's great. It's David Attenborough. <laughs> I love him. It's a part of a series, a four-part series about the South Pacific. And it was done, um, I think it aired in 60 or something like that. Anyways, I'm going to put a link up on our website. Again, our website is rufsmpodcast.com. And we have links to everything that we talk about on here. We'll have a page on Jessica Sherry. Her documentary is going to be out on Amazon Prime soon. But it's also airing as part of a PBS series. It's so good. Everyone needs to see it. It is so good. Go to waitingforjohndoc.com and on there is a place where you can check for your local PBS listings on when they'll be airing it. And again, Amazon Prime, if you have that next month, everyone should see this documentary. It's beautiful. The cinematography is gorgeous. The people are engaging. So inspiring. Yeah. And then we also have a little song to play us out with here. I went ahead and googled some youtube videos for john from because i wanted to see as much as i could so anyways i was going down the youtube black hole as you're want to do as i am want to do especially when it's john from movement and just <laughs> one video after another and i came across a lovely little song oh let's hear it we will hear it and playing us out today instead of our usual outro music is my mate george and his song cargo man the cargo man came to these islands once before told us one day soon he would be back to bring much more the strangers here they talk to him with wires every day but it's us he really loves soon he'll drive them all away John from John from Know that you will come, John Frum. 